Good morning, church family. Uh, thank you, Jeremy, for leading us before the throne of God, and then thanks, Jack, for giving us a practical way to express that in our community. That's cool. That's a sweet opportunity. Do be prayerful about that. Uh, Ministry partnerships is something that Church Project is passionate about, and that is one of those um, things that we have to, to be able to do. And yeah, just what a sweet opportunity to love the community of Greeley in a really practical way. So, um, I want to thank uh, Pastor Aaron for uh, setting the stage this morning for today's message last week. And if you were here, um, you saw that Aaron set the table of this trial that we looked at in Luke uh, chapter 22, the end of that chapter. And I, it's a trial that's seeking to answer the question, who is Jesus and specifically who is Jesus to you and Aaron turned that question on to us and asked us to consider it and I say Aaron set the table because that question who Jesus is to you will be the framework for how we're going to draw the application out of this text that we're looking at this morning so it's going to be similar it's going to feel kind of similar and so uh, depending on your perspective uh, Aaron's either made my job easier this morning by uh, pointing out the trajectory that we're going to look through in the next verses, or he's made it more difficult because I've got to be the guy that follows his articulate teaching. So regardless, uh, thank you, Aaron, uh, for your faithfulness to teach it, and uh, uh, I hope God continues to use his word, sanctifying and growing our church. So with all that being said, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the end tables to your right or to your left, and you can find Luke chapter uh, 23 on page 755 in one of those Bibles. And as we get there, um, I want to recap some of the context from Aaron's message last week and some of the messages that he has given up to that point, because um, oftentimes, uh, Because we're going through and looking at Scripture at weekend by weekend chunks, it's kind of difficult at times to hold together the flow of the narrative. You know, and if you're like me, we covered something a month and a half ago, and so you think it's pretty distant. It's out there, it's taken a long time to transpire, but in reality, a lot of these events, especially in Luke chapter 22 and into uh, chapter 23 and chapter 24, are going to come at us pretty rapidly. Okay, and so I want to. So, in the intent to hold all of those things together and look at the narrative, um, I want to recap a little bit. So, Jesus and his disciples—they've come into Jerusalem during this time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where the uh, the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And this feast, back in the beginning of Luke uh, chapter twenty-two, was a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people all the way back to Israelites' times as slaves to the Egyptians. But it was also a reminder of God's faithfulness and man's sinfulness and the payment needed to reconcile man back to God. And Jesus and his disciples are spending a lot of intimate time together during this feast. They're in the upper room They're spending some time in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, all of a sudden, that time of fellowship and prayer was disrupted by a man of men desiring to capture Jesus. 
And knowing of the betrayal and prepared for the time, Jesus goes with the captives voluntarily. Betrayed, Jesus is hauled off in chains to be charged by the Jewish leaders. And as Aaron talked about last week, many false witnesses were brought before the court to testify against Jesus. And Jesus is ultimately condemned for professing to be God, which is blasphemy. And with such a serious offense and the internal hatred that these Jewish leaders had for Jesus, the Jewish leaders schemed to bring capital punishment upon him, to kill him. And that's kind of where we find ourselves today. Jesus in the hands of a mob, being put on trial. And it's in that context that the question, who is Jesus? The question Aaron uh, posed last week begins. So with that context and with the question in your mind, who is Jesus? And specifically, who is Jesus to you? We are going to tackle a whole 25 verses this morning. Good thing the Super Bowl doesn't start until 5. So, 4.30, excuse me, excuse me. No, we're not going to take that much time. But let's begin reading Luke chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him, Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man, this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they, went, they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judah and Galilee, even to this place. And when Jesus heard this, he asked them he, whether he was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was uh, himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendor clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this time they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called before the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to me. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Peter um, Pilate addressed them once more, des- desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed, so that Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So they schemed. The mob 
was scheming. And I say that because if you know your history, you know that at this time, the Israelite people are under the heavy fist of Roman authority. And Rome let them live out their lives. They, they let the Jewish people live out their cultures, their traditions. But one limitation that the Roman Empire put upon the Jewish people is that of capital punishment. They could not put anybody to death. Therefore, they brought Jesus before the state of Rome to convince the Romans that Jesus was a threat worth killing. And during this time, the Jews were capable of pronouncing the death sentence. They couldn't actually do anything about it. And so they begin to scheme, thinking, how might we, under Roman law, get this Jesus guy killed? Look at the charges in the text that are brought up against Jesus, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar and claiming to be a king. So the evidence that is brought before the Roman courts against Jesus is not to be claiming to be a God because under Roman law, claiming to be a God wasn't punishable by death. The Romans really could care less about the internal fightings of the Jews and therefore the Jews portrayed Jesus as one who wanted to be king, as one who claimed to be a king and a king against the kingdom of Rome. And we see in this text that this trial had uh, four different aspects to it. The first Aaron taught on last week where Jesus was um, standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. And then the second is where this text begins with Pilate before he passes him off to this other Roman official, Herod Antipas, who then passes him back to Pilate. And Pilate is the fifth Roman prefect of the time. He had complete responsibility, utter authority of all Roman court decisions. And he just so happens to be in Jerusalem when Jesus is on trial. And the reason he's in Jerusalem is because this feast, this feast of unleavened bread, this cultural feast that the Romans really could care nothing about, the Jews cared about a lot. And during the history of Roman oppression over the Jews, the Jews would use this feast as kind of like a rioting fest. I mean, you know, start shaking off stuff. Let's start, you know, thinking about what God can do for us, what he's done in our past, and all of those memories about what God is and who he is and the faithfulness that he's done for his people led to riots in the streets. And so Pilate is here so that that might not happen. And in addition to that, to appease that, to try to make that be a little less irritable, the Romans instituted a tradition where Rome would give back, they would pardon one Jewish male that the Jews wanted back, Barabbas. It's kind of interesting that Pilate's there because as this uh, text says in verse 18 and 19, um, there was an uprising <laughs> of at least one individual and probably more who desired to throw off the chains of Roman rule and had failed, Barabbas. Guilty of insurrection, caught in the act and sentenced accordingly. And this is all backdrop 
This is all context for understanding who the figures in the story are and what roles and customs shape the trial that this man, Jesus, finds himself in. And there's probably hundreds, literally, of details within this text that we could push into and mine out truths and applications. But I I really want to get back to the question that I posed initially. The question that Aaron posed last week is, who is Jesus? Because this text is, is an amazing preview of who Jesus is and what he's about to accomplish. It's, it's an amazing preview. It's an illustration. It's a foreshadowing. And God intends to show his son off in a really significant way in this text. And that's not really new for God. It's not really new for God to show off the work of his son. Who he is what he's going to accomplish. And he's even been doing it before Jesus was on the earth. God has been doing it ever since the need for Christ existed. All softly spoken promises, all illustrative, all foreshadowing, all previewing, all little peaks into the grand person of his son, all previewing God's answer to the question, who is Jesus? You could look all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Think about Adam. He's called the head of creation, pointing to the reality that Jesus is going to act as the ultimate fulfilling head. Think about the animal skins that were used by Adam and Eve after they ate of the tree that they covered their shame and their guilt, pointing to the fact that Christ's act on the cross would be the ultimate covering of righteousness for those who would believe. Think of Abraham, who would not spare his own son, pointing to the reality that Jesus would be the ultimate son not spared. Think of the sacrificial lamb that was used to substitute for Isaac's life pointing towards Jesus who would be the ultimate substitute used to purchase life everlasting. Think of his journey into a land not his own to call forth his bride. Consider that Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom, journeying to a people not his own to call forth his perfect bride. Think of Joseph who brought reconciliation and provision for his broken family, where Christ would be the ultimate source of reconciliation and provision for the broken. Think of Moses, delivered his people from slavery, where Christ would be the ultimate source of rescue, liberating the slave. Do you see it? God has been previewing who Jesus is and what he's going to do prior to Jesus even getting on the scene. Think of the Passover lamb who was without blemish, pointing toward Jesus, who would be the ultimate unblemished lamb whose blood would cover his people. Think of the manna that was freely given down in the wilderness. Consider that Jesus is the ultimate free gift coming down from heaven. Think of the Ark of the Covenant. And how it possessed the weighty law of perfection. And consider how Jesus would be the ultimate possessor of perfection 
fulfilling the law. Think of the conquering king David, conquering Goliath. Consider that Jesus would be the ultimate conquering king. Think of Ruth. Her hope for redemption in Boaz, where Christ would be the ultimate hope of redemption. Think of Hosea and his faithfulness to his adulterous wife and consider that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of faithfulness to the unfaithful. Do you see it? This is all one great preview. Previewing the grand series of events and pieces of the progressive revelation of God answering the question, who Jesus is. They are all Soft whispers, building momentum, building volume, that this book is about one story, about one person centered on Jesus Christ. And as we get to the base, prior to summiting the story that writes all stories in this text, what began as a promise in Genesis chapter 3 and whispers have gone henceforth comes as a booming forte from eternity past. One of the greatest previews, previewing the greatest event in all of history is that you and I are Barabbas. You and I are the guilty insurgent aiding in the passionate revolt against the writer and king of all history. You and I are the individuals whose trial has already been completed. The verdict has already been proclaimed. And we've been found guilty before the trial. And the sweetness is, if you're here this morning and you've trusted in who that Jesus is and the work that he's done on your behalf, You can look at this text and say, just as Christ shouldered the very real, heavy punishment intended for Barabbas in this text, Christ is going to bear your eternal punishment on your behalf. It is a really sweet preview. It's the preview of the innocent for the guilty, the physical exchange between Jesus crucified for Barabbas is a preview of the grand exchange that will take place only hours later between the Holy of Holies and the creation that ran in rebellious fashion against its creator. Where Jesus will trade with us his seat of mercy for our seat of judgment. Do you see it? It's like all of Scripture up to this point is one great preview, showing us just a little bit at a time how God is going to answer the sweet answer of who is Jesus. When you think about it this way, it's as if Scripture up to this point is like the greatest movie tease ever written. You know what I'm talking about? It's like you're watching TV and up comes this uh, preview of eight or nine quick snips of a story. It gets you excited about spending 
How much money does it cost to go see the movies? 12 bucks or some outrageous number like, you know, it gets you excited about going and seeing this movie in its fullness. They build anticipation for seeing those bits and pieces connected by the context of the greater story. And then you go and you watch it. And if it's a really good movie, uh, when you finally get to it and you go through it and you see it through its entirety, the previews that got you excited about going and seeing that movie are magnified by knowing the story in its completion. And the reality is, in a very complete way, but not fully consummated since the movie of all times is about to play. With the death of Jesus on a Roman cross and his resurrection from a grave. Where God will, with full glory, do in Jesus what God has been previewing, what God has been illustrating, what God has been foreshadowing, what God has promised that God would do in Jesus since before the foundation of the world. Making known, making as plain as day to everyone who Jesus is. Because he is the head of of creation. He is the ultimate covering of righteousness for those who believe because Jesus is the ultimate son not spared. He is the ultimate substitute used to purchase life everlasting. He is the ultimate bridegroom going into a people not his own to call forth a bride that is perfect. He is the ultimate source of reconciliation and provision for the broken. He is the ultimate Source of rescue, liberating the slave. He is the ultimate unblemished lamb whose blood would cover his people, the ultimate free gift from heaven, the ultimate possessor of perfection, fulfilling the law, the ultimate conquering king. the ultimate hope of redemption, the ultimate fulfillment of faithfulness to the unfaithful, that is who Jesus is. And oh, how we've only scratched the surface about seeing the way that God has answered and will answer how sweet and how significant and how big that Jesus is. Because if you look in this text, you see as plain as day that we have to add just another descriptor, as we will continue to add descriptors, that Jesus is ultimately the ultimate sufferer, suffering for the sake of others. And I, I tried to think about what my reaction would be standing before a judge asking me questions to the answers that might determine whether I live or whether I die and the reaction of being afraid is not even close to like summing that all up. But I don't know how else to put it. And I'm 
more than humbled, but again, I don't know what other word to use when I look at Jesus' response here in this text. If you read uh, Matthew, Mark, and John's account, Jesus stood silent as individuals were heralding words, applauding the death of him, so much so that Pilate was amazed by the lack of response of Jesus. No comments to Pilate's lack of authority or power to judge the king of kings. No words expressing the injustice that has taken place. No complaints. No reason giving to rebuke false claims. Just silence. Why does the king of the universe, who has every right, every freedom, every liberty, power, and authority, stand before his own insignificant creation without words? And think about this, the only individual who could have stared into the face of the Roman Empire and, compl- and, and proclaimed, who are you compared to me? Who are you compared to me? Your power is worthless compared to mine. Your authority is worthless compared to mine. Your sovereignty is worthless compared to mine. Your judgment, Pilate, is worthless comp- compared to mine. And Jesus possessed every right to forego the wicked and unjust treatment. And yet, there he is, standing voluntarily quiet. Who's Jesus? He is the ultimate sufferer, suffering for the sake of others. And there are hundreds of applications that we could draw from the example given here in this text, and we could look at Barabbas' life and say, what's different about Barabbas after he encountered Jesus? And you ever think about that? What, what happened to the Barabbas that left, that was redeemed, that was substituted? What did his life look like after his interaction with Jesus? And Scripture doesn't really tell us directly, but we can answer that question as children of God If you're here this morning and you believe and you've encountered that substitution, we can ask the question, what should our response look like knowing what Christ did, what he did for us? And I want to try to answer that question at least partially this morning. The response has to do with who Jesus is because of the way God answered the question, who Jesus is. What do I mean by that? It means that scripture tells us that we are either going to be in one of two camps in your response before seeing who Jesus is, the way that scripture articulates who he is. You are either going to fall down on your face before him in submission, in worship, acknowledging his work on our behalf or your continue to revolt against him like Barabbas. The reality is there's simply no other middle ground here. Uh, If you are here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, the Jesus that is articulated and communicated through this, My prayer for you is that you would see the beauty of the way that God answers the question, who is Jesus? That you would see the beauty of God's love and motivation that sent his son 
to do the things that he is doing. If you're here this morning and you want to talk to somebody about that or pray with somebody about that, I know there's going to be people that are coming up at the end when we close that would love to just talk to you about that, pray with you about that, and share the beauty of what Christ has done in their lives. So what does Jesus being the ultimate sufferer, suffering for the sake of others, mean to us who have already given up our lives to him? What response should we have knowing this truth about Jesus? And I, I found myself completely overwhelmed in my office this week thinking about the suffering that is going on in our church. And people outside of this church that I know that are suffering in this life in very real very real ways, followers of Jesus who are just in the thick of it. In the midst of a death in the family, in the, di- in the midst of health concerns, in the midst of uh, difficult relationships, parenting problems, you name it. Maybe for you it's that you're helping shoulder some of that weight some of that suffering that someone that you know is going through. So what should this truth that Jesus is the ultimate sufferer, suffering for the sake of others, prompt in us as followers of Jesus? My prayer is that it helps build our perspective, shape our attitude, and therefore influence our faith about suffering. And I think it should do this in two primary ways. The first is that Jesus, as the ultimate sufferer, points to the reality of suffering for those who follow him. This may seem kind of duh, but we need to consider the weight of texts like uh, Luke 9.23. says, "And and and Jesus said to all, if anyone... Would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Or Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, that we would be, that his prayer is that we would not be moved by the afflictions that we were destined for. Therefore, suffering is a is promised to the followers of Jesus because it's in accordance with God's will. 1 Peter 4, 19. So How does that biblical reality of suffering as Christians, as we follow Christ, fit into your worldview? What, to your circumstances right now, and depending on where you're at in life, you're going to answer that question a little differently. You're going to look at me and say, I get that because I experientially feel it right now. Or you're going to say, Jason, I get that because I have this person in my life that's feeling it right now. And, but there might be others of us that find it hard to suffer, hard, hard that we suffer in the America blessings that we live in. And my intention in talking about this is not to downplay the thankfulness that we should have as Americans living in America. And that's not my intention here, okay? But my intention is that we take a hard look at the biblical truth 
of suffering and the promise that is given to us and allow it to shape our understanding about the nature of following Jesus. Instead of letting our culture shape it. So let me ask the question, why and what is the danger in believing that we as Americans simply don't suffer? First is, it's not a biblical concept. The second is, it's based in relative comparisons that yield no dependence on Jesus, but breed comfort based in circumstances. Let me say that again. It is based in relative comparisons that yield no dependence on Jesus, but breed comfort based in circumstances. Let me illustrate it. Right now in my job, there are some very significant difficulties that I deal with on a daily basis. And if you desire to be a man or a woman of integrity inside the workplace, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And if I share those difficulties with Aaron, and I say, man, I'm struggling with patience in my job towards the people that I employ, or I'm struggling with being a man of integrity in these different decisions when the the easy decision would be to make this decision. And Aaron looks at me and he says, dude, you need to be thankful that you have a job to struggle in. There's a lot of people out there that don't have jobs. Like you need to be thankful for your job. What is Aaron ultimately telling me? He's saying to be comforted in the discomfort of others and be happy that you're not experiencing them today. That's relative comparison. And that relative comparison doesn't point me towards my need to see my thankfulness in my job as a product, as a blessing of my need and fulfillment in Jesus, not the comforts of this world. Instead, when I do go to Aaron and we do talk about the struggles of my marriage and my job, uh, personal, Aaron doesn't draw my attention to circumstances to be thankful for. Instead, he points me towards Christ's active work and blessing in my life to sanctify and grow me. Why? Because as Christians, we were not created to find comfort in the fleeting things of this world. Therefore, don't draw people's attention to those things. People come and articulate to you suffering in their life. Use it as a way to push them towards the cross of Jesus. Which leads us to point number two. What does Jesus as ultimate suffer, suffering for the sake of others mean to us? It means that suffering is purposed either for your growth or for my growth. What do I mean by that? It means that suffering is purposed either for your growth or for my growth. Consider uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 1 Peter 5.10, it's a sweet text. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ 
get this, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Suffering has a purpose. It is for your sanctification so that he might refine us to be more like his son. But it also might be used so that I might be refined or that people in your life might be refined. Uh, consider this text, 2 Corinthians two fourteen through 16. But thanks be to God who in, in, who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ of God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life. What's that mean? Consider this. During this time, the Romans would go off, they'd conquer different people, tribes, and nations, and they would take the general that they would conquer, and they'd bring them back to Rome, and there would be this mighty parade amongst the city of Rome. Everybody would come and the defeated captive would be led around in the front of the chariot of the conqueror and people would spit on him and they would mock him and they would strip him bare and they'd humiliate him. What does that mean for us in this text? That means that Paul is saying that Jesus is leading us as his saints in that. He is leading us in triumphant procession so that people may see your suffering and we might be refined. So when we consider the suffering of this church, when we consider the people in this church who are suffering, take great hope that it is purposed either for your own sanctification or so that we might look at you and as you cling to the cross, we might be strengthened through it. I want to simply close with rereading 1 Peter 5.10. What a sweet promise in the light of suffering. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, get that, confirm, get that, strengthen and establish you. My prayer at Church Project is that we would be people that hold fast and point others to hold fast in suffering, looking to Jesus as the source of strength and comfort, knowing that he has purposed it so that we might be sanctified in him collectively and individually. Amen? Amen. As we just kind of close in prayer, maybe just close your Bibles and just take a moment to reflect on what God is teaching you. Maybe close your eyes. a lot here. Lord, you have articulated such great truths in your word, not from my words, but from your words, Lord, that we might glean great, greater faith in seeing who you are and what that means in our life personally. Lord, I pray that you help us in the church of Greeley 
to make our suffering known so that we might be sanctified in it and that we might sanctify others in it, Lord. I pray for strength and hope and steadfastness of faith for those who are suffering right now in this church. Lord, this life is not easy. It is so hard. So Lord, I pray that you resolve us because of the resolution of your son and who he is to strengthen us, Lord. As you consider this morning, I feel like the only appropriate response, regardless of where you are, is worship. And that worship can look a lot of different ways. It can look like partaking in communion, which is over here on the uh, right-hand side of the room, taking that cracker, dipping it in the grape juice, and being reminded of the sacrifice that Christ has done on your behalf so that he can establish you in his kingdom. Maybe it's just standing and worshiping. Maybe it's sitting and worshiping. But regardless of how it's done, may we be people that worship Jesus in very significant and real ways in our lives as we go from this place.